This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat. Welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. We critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week, we discuss a classic text, theme, or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. We welcome back our old friends of the show, Mr. Eugene T. and Sandy Clark. Welcome back. Good Thanks to be back. Thanks for having us. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Too excited so, over there. I like the sync. Have you been practicing <laughs> yeah, this? Well, maybe we're in sync. We're in sync. We're in sync. Yeah. <laughs> so, what do you have for us this week? Well, today I thought we would discuss a little bit about the positivity of our negativity, specifically the advantages and the benefits that our negative emotions confer to us. I think there's been quite a lot of a kind of narrative going on in the public sphere right now about the benefits of happiness and how we pursue happiness, why it's meaningful to pursue happiness. I think that's a misconception. But I think to balance that off, I think it's useful to us to consider some of the benefits conferred by also feeling the unpleasant, the negative emotions. I think negative emotions have a sort of bad rap to it. You shouldn't be angry. You shouldn't feel this way. It's bad to feel shameful or guilt. But I think to balance out that conversation, it's useful to consider how they themselves might be beneficial for our well-being and even our productivity. And I think just to pick up on that point about you shouldn't be angry or sad or depressed, it's quite interesting to think that when we are children, one of the first things that our parents might say if, if you're sad or angry is, you know, stop it, calm down, or there's nothing wrong. And so from quite a young age, we're kind of left to suppress all these emotions which can have quite far-reaching ramifications mm. later on in life. Yeah. One could say that this is quite commonsensical in that, of course, you're going to have negative feelings. You can't avoid them. But it seems to me that, at least academically or broadly speaking in cultural discourse, we're seeing more attention given to that side of feelings, right? So I'm thinking about the so-called anti-self-help movement or the wave of popular books that are trying to address this more than, say, the kind of straightforward positive thinking stuff or straightforward like pursuit of happiness stuff that we were used to in self-help of the 90s and the 80s, right? So locate the turn that this discourse is pointing us out to. So why is it now becoming something of a new focus or a reorientation of what it means to feel more authentically? Hmm. I think it's a very nice balance and check against the, like you said, this influx of messages that says that it's good to be positive. The positive psychology movement has been great in getting people to focus on their strengths, on their virtues, on concepts and practices such as mindfulness. But I think the concept has, at some point in time, been a little bit oversold. So it's not too difficult for us to be a little bit cynical that what, this is the secret to happiness and this is, you know, even emotional intelligence that you might have come across. It's the key missing ingredient towards organizational effectiveness and employee happiness. No, I think sometimes such positive concepts are oversold without necessarily having the sort of the necessary backing or the empirical evidence. And so, again, to balance out the narrative, we are not saying that it's all beneficial or all just meaningful to be positive all the time, I think we need to give equal treatment to both our pleasant and our pleasant emotions. So maybe the turning point, like you said, for what is, it can be seen in manifestations of books such as, well, things I can't say on radio, right, right. right? But there's a book called The Power of Negative Emotions that seeks to tell us that, look, you're not meant to suppress 
the negative emotions, that's not the ideal way of actually dealing with it. You need to own it. You need to develop something called emotional agility. Make full use of the spectrum of both your positive and your negative emotions for your well-being. And there's a, one of the leading researchers into subjective well-being who's a pioneer of the positive psychology movement, a guy called Ed Diener. He did some studies that showed that if you become or reach levels of excessive happiness, that actually impacts your life in a lot of detrimental ways when it comes to your income, your education, your activity in general, your status. Because I think there's a lot of, as you say, this kind of oversimplified movement towards positivity, you know, just smile and the world will smile with you and, you know, everything's fine no matter what and everything happens for a reason, just learn and move on. But there's actually quite a lot of positivity to be gained from listening to your negative emotions and learning the kind of messages that they have to offer in terms of, for example, in politics, studies have shown that if you're projecting anger in your message, you're shown to be more competent as a leader and you're sort of conferred popularity as well as a result. And one of the main examples from this was they studied the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And when he was in court giving his testimony, at the times when he was really defensive, but angrily so, his approval ratings climbed up. But conversely, when he was more reticent and more sad and sort of remorseful, people started to doubt his competency as a leader. And the researchers thought that perhaps it was because of people's opinion of Bill Clinton himself. So they got an actor in to read off the exact same statement two times. The first time he gave a kind of empowered, angry, assertive tone to the message. The second time was very sort of reserved, quiet, almost sort of in a kind of demure stature. And the first sort of deliverance was rated quite highly in terms of competency, in terms of good leadership. And the second one was replicated to say, well, actually, he's not that great a leader. He's very incompetent. He's very insecure. And so that's just one of the examples that goes to show that negative emotions, when channeled correctly, can produce positive results. Right. It makes you more relatable in that sense, right? Because I think being human means we are in contact with those feelings and oftentimes in significant ways, right? Losing someone, uh, just losing things in life in general brings the sense of guilt or shame or failure and everybody's gone through that. And if you have a leader who can somehow express that in a poignant register that's relatable enough, people will hook onto that. Yeah, and interestingly, when you talked about guilt, so if you feel guilty about something, then generally speaking, particularly when it comes to significant loss, so if you lose a a loved one or you lose your job, you have some major traumatic experience that induces a sense of shame or guilt that you should have spent more time with the person, that you should have put more effort into your job, then upon that reflection, you're more likely to, a lot of people when they lose a loved one, they want to know what they can do to improve their lives. They take steps to enhance themselves, strengthen their existing relationships, or if they lose their job, they want to know how they can upscale themselves, how they can move forward in terms of their employability. And so that acts as a driving force as well. So this idea that you should somehow depress or suppress all these negative emotions is quite counterproductive. I like your point, Sandy, about leadership and how anger can actually be beneficial to leaders. So there have been countless studies, and one good case that I could also draw upon is Barack Obama's response to the BP oil spill. I think this was back in 2008. And so his first response, his 
his impression given to the press was that he was calm, he was collected. He was, I think one of the articles actually reported him saying, chew bubblegum and keep cool sort of approach to handling the crisis situation. And quite interestingly, he was criticized for this response because he did not show the necessary emotions, in this case, the unpleasant emotions, the emotions such as anger and sadness, maybe a tinge of sadness at the extent of the loss that was, you know, affecting the, not just the employees, but also the people within that particular community. So subsequently, he had to up his expression of unpleasant emotions, in this case, anger. And that anger was seen subsequently as an indication that he was personally invested in a situation, that he wanted to do something about that. It goes back to the root of anger being an indication of an emotional expression that you feel when something unjust, something unfair, something unequal has actually happened. And anger is seen by others as, well, this person has a strong emotional investment in this issue. It's important to him because if you did not feel angry, it can be taken as an indication that you don't quite care. You don't mm-hmm. care at all about yeah. the situation. Very important for leaders. Something that all negative emotions have in common is that they impact others. And I think that's Mm. what unsettles people about it in the sense that if you're angry, it's addressing something or someone out there. And they tend to be very specific too. Absolutely. Right? Like shame is very specific. It refers Mm. to a particular thing that Mm. happens. Guilt as well points to something very particular in a way that maybe positive emotions don't do as much or don't do as sharply, right? And this is what unsettles people about feeling down because then you're almost in a conversation with something or someone else and Mm. that other person is expected to respond and then therein begins, you know, the complications, right? And maybe that's what makes it more difficult to encounter. Yes, absolutely. I think there is actually something in the psychological sciences. It's called the bad astrology stronger than good effect. And so if you think about some of the actions or the movements, say collective action movements, social rights activism, for instance, they're very, very much driven by its focus on a particular issue that's of importance to the individual who is voicing up. And so you can think about anger, you can think about guilt, even there's been even some studies that show that when people feel guilty about contributing to polluting the environment or leaving a substantially higher than carbon footprint, they will engage in action to actually correct those behaviors. So just building on Sandy's point there, guilt is an unpleasant emotion, but it also causes you to reflect inward, to think about your actions, how it's impacted others, like you said, and what you can actually do to improve on that. And I think picking up your point about essentially how do you manage these negative emotions in regards to the effect they have on other people. And I think the central point is that And this is something that's explored certainly through Buddhist philosophy, where a lot of people look on Buddhism, say, as the cultivation of joy and happiness and being blessed out underneath a tree. But actually, there's a real encouragement to sort of know thyself, but to know your whole self. So the idea behind the mindfulness practice in relation to negative emotions is that you don't become so reactive to the emotions when they arise, so you don't lash out so much. It's more about spotting the trigger and the reason behind the emotion in the first place that allows you to maybe sort of drift off in a more productive course. So say, for example, someone annoys you to the point of anger, instead of lashing out to them, you might feel that emotion, but maybe with some mindfulness, you would think, 
okay, what's the best way about resolving this matter? How can I best approach this person? So it's about channeling the energy from the negative emotion in a productive way that leads to a positive outcome rather than just letting the emotion sort of run free and you tearing up the building and, you know, smashing everything around you. Yeah, the difficulty with that is that a lot of negative emotions press on a sense of urgency, right? In a sense that your defenses are heightened and you want a reaction. But unfortunately, you know, the wisest reactions tend to require a bit more time and reflection, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, and it's much, much more difficult than to just explode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, this is why people spend 40 years in meditation before they get <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> 40 years. <laughs> if they're lucky. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's times, I mean, if you think about any kind of great hero or, or person in, in history, fictional or otherwise, they tend to be flawed deeply troubled being. So if you think about someone like Batman, for example, I mean, there's a really flawed character who has really complex emotions, but he's able to sort of overcome the worst of the emotion to make use of the best of the negative emotion, if, if that makes sense. And that's why we root for him. Too. Yeah, that's why we because we can relate to him, like you said yeah. earlier on, or even like Harry Potter and his sort of little gang. They're always breaking rules and going against the grain and reacting, you know, to situations. But again, in ways that sort of tie in wisdom with that urgency. And I think through mindfulness particularly, it's not that you have a sort of a buffering effect that you have on your laptop sometimes, and it's really annoying because it takes ages for it to sort itself out. But it gives you that sort of split second to judge which is the best way to go. So you still have that sense of urgency, but you don't lash out immediately or react immediately. You're able to sort of respond with that sense of urgency. And there's certainly a few examples of that in the Buddhist teachings of Buddha himself becoming quite angry or disgruntled towards someone for some reason. So this idea that somehow even the most enlightened beings don't feel these emotions is misguided. They do. They just know how to respond more productively with them. All right. Interesting points. And I think key here is the care that it takes to transition, right, from the very compelling impulses to the more level expression of what you feel. And we're going to talk more about that process of caring in the second part of the show. But for now, let's take a break. I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahmat, joined by Eugene T and Sandy Clark. And we're talking about the positivity of negative emotions on Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahmat, joined this week by author and columnist Sandy Clark and Professor of Psychology Eugene T at Help University. We're talking about the positivity of negative emotions. In the first part of the show, we talked about the importance of negative emotions, their power, and the ideal. What do we do with them? And we ended on a note about the care it requires. And, you know, to transition from the burning rages of negative emotions, which are in themselves potent, to a clearer articulation of their wisdom. And there is a lot of it because, as we agreed in the first part of the show, a lot of the negative emotions we encounter with this guilt, fear, anger is in reaction to something of the world. It is a sign that we are connected, you know, and this is better than indifference or being numb, you know, which is the worst case scenario to me, right? It dehumanizes you. Now, we talked about the term care and this figure speech comes up a lot when we talk about cheerfulness or popular accounts of happiness, right? The idea that you can just skip through the meadows without a care. (laughs) You can go on with being in the moment without a care. There's a sense where when we talk about happiness, we equate it with not caring, right? Mm. <laughs> but uh, again, this is just a popular account of it, right? Mm. The way that we have yeah. framed it. But what you have talked about in the first part is the importance of that 
caring towards emotions mm. because being attentive to negative feelings is a form of caring about yourself as well. It is. I think just to build on that point, it's never to our benefits to repeatedly, frequently suppress all negative emotions. Remember, all emotions that arise are useful. They tell us something about the world around us. And I don't think we give them enough attention. Neither do we give that enough time to actually process why is it that we're feeling certain emotions. You're right in saying that happiness is not all about just skipping in a, in a meadow. I get this image of a bright sunny day and fields and you know, rainbows. People, rainbows and yeah. unicorns and fairies and stuff. But I think that's only one part of what authentic happiness actually is. So if I could just borrow a little bit from positive psychology and say that Positive emotions only form one part of an authentic, meaningful experience. The other components involve things such as engagement, fighting for a cause that is meaningful towards you, a sense of accomplishment from being successful in that cause, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. These other components don't necessarily get accompanied by a lot of pleasant emotions. Sometimes it's tough when we strive for things which are meaningful towards us. We are going to be faced with, we are going to be hit with failures, setbacks, unpleasant emotions. But if you have a chat with people who have lived through difficult times, they'll tell you, for most of our part, that these are the experiences that shape them. And these are experiences that made them who they are. And positive emotions might be a positive consequence of all that striving, of all that overcoming of the unpleasantness. So they were able to, they were successful in being able to cope with and overcome, maybe even channel those negative emotions. And I think that can be seen in a lot of the examples, such as, for example, the fictional characters who go through a lot of troubled experiences for the greater good. But you also see that, for example, in the civil rights movement of the 60s, the suffragette movement for women's vote and equality, and even some of the movements that are happening now. And all of those stem from initially negative or unpleasant emotions, such as anger, frustration, disgust, maybe. Yeah. And I think the Dalai Lama was once asked is it not a good thing to be calm all the time? And he said, no, because you become like a wet lettuce or a wet vegetable or something like that. And his point was that if you're calm and sedated all the time, you become almost like a domesticated animal. You become indifferent. You don't move. You don't push for any progress. So again, it's about harnessing the energy of all of the emotions of the full range of emotions that we have. And if you look at, for example, the work of Carl Jung or Friedrich Nietzsche, Carl Jung talked about the shadow of the self where we kind of suppress and bury all our sort of dark and unwanted feelings and emotions because we're taught from a young age that it's not good to feel sad or angry or frustrated. We need to feel happy all the time. And so all of this stuff goes right to the recesses of our minds. But he made the point that you cannot grow as a good person, as a productive citizen, unless you acknowledge that side of you. Because within that side of you is the driving forces that enable creative and innovative and progressive solutions and actions that you can then use to contribute to society in positive ways. When you deny that, you kind of miss out of half of your human experience. And so you're sort of floating in the wind. And I think that's why a lot of people are apathetic or indifferent, because they're kind of sedated in their comfort almost, especially these days when we are very comfortable. And of course, your favourite philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, he talked about the idea of, you know, you need to be uncomfortable with your struggles, with your dark side, with your envy of others, for example, because that can actually help to push you further along. Yeah, uh, there's something about flourishing or virtues that require struggling, right? In the sense that a lot of the things that we want, whether it's strength, resolve, all of that will not be just awarded for free. You're yeah. not born with those, but 
You have to be cultivated through life and life is going to throw you all sorts of things you don't like. We've also mentioned the contagiousness of a lot of these negative emotions in that they're potent because they can be a rallying point, right? Shame is very interesting in the sense you can internalize someone else's shame. You can look at somebody being shamed and you can actually feel ashamed for that person, right? And a lot of this has been very useful to galvanize social movements and stuff like that. But I'm also wondering about feeling authentically in that we don't simply get carried away with the power of these emotions as it's dictated by others. You know, my shame should be unique to my journey, right? Or my anger should be unique to my journey. I just can't internalize Donald Trump's anger, you know, however much it's very contagious or very well-delivered, you know, rhetorically, right? So I get it that it has the power to bind us, has the power to shake us into awareness. But I also worry about how uh, emotions can allow us to be dissolved, in the mood or the atmosphere of a certain context, you know. And thereby, we relinquish, you know, the distinct layers of our, you know, structure of feelings, you right, know. Yeah. Right. I think there are some studies that if I could just toss in a couple of research that my colleague, Dr. Eng Yin Lu, and my associate professor, Neil Paulson, from the University of Queensland, we've done studies to show that one part of empathizing with the leader's emotions is also dependent on whether we see the leader as representing ourselves. So if Trump does not represent who we are, then we don't connect with him at that emotional level as well. So one of our studies, which we entitled, To Be One of Us, You Have to Feel Like One of Us, really tells us that we see leaders as a representative as kind of like the barometer, the indication of the state of being in our countries, in our teams, in our departments, and our organizations. And so if the leader is there to represent who we are and is expressing or showing emotions which are incongruous, incongruent with what we expect the leader to show, then we're going to say, look, we can't treat you as being an authentic leader. So this is possibly where the notion of authenticity actually comes in. It's even worse when we suspect that the leader is faking emotions. And so this person is just hamming it up. This person is just acting it up. So the, again, just to draw upon the example of Obama during the BP oil spill, he was actually criticized in a subsequent, say, uh, press conference for acting up or hamming up those emotions, which many people suspect that he wasn't quite feeling. With the Trump example, for instance, perhaps we don't necessarily empathize with what his policies, his values, his style of leadership is. And so his expressions of emotions might come across as being disingenuous, not something that we can easily relate to. How about in the case of secondary trauma, where you are friends with somebody who's gone through something major, like survive a robbery, barely survive an accident, or lost a dear lover or something like that, and you want to be there for them, and empathy is so needed at that point, but you don't want to be you know, sucked into that void either, you know? At that point, boundaries must be drawn as well, you know, as to like how to best, most resourcefully use, you know, I don't want to sound technical about it, but sometimes it gets down to that, right? Where do you say, you know, I can't let your negative emotions suck me in or I have to protect what I regard as the limits of grief, you know? That to me is more interesting in that that's where a lot of relationships rise or fall, right? The extent to which you can go with that person in their journey or alongside them, right? How do you deal with that? There's a, a really great book that discusses just that point that you're making, and it's called Against Empathy by Paul Bloom, who's a professor of psychology at Yale. And it's a really, really great book to check out if you haven't read it. And he talks about that idea of when you try to employ empathy in these kind of major situations, it's very counterproductive in the sense that if you go to someone, let's use the example of a therapist. If you go to a therapist with a traumatic experience, 
you don't want them to collapse under the weight of empathy and say, oh my God, I feel the same, you know, and let's share a beer and cry our tears of sorrow. You want them to be able to maintain a distance, a professional distance, but also to be compassionate enough to know what you're feeling, but not to step into your shoes. And so the antidote against empathy, as Paul Bloom argues, is to have a sort of rational compassion to sort of be able to understand where the person is coming from, but to be able to create that boundary where you can see what's happening with them and be able to use your skills and resources to help them, but you don't get sucked into that space yourself because he says if that happens, and it's not that empathy is entirely useless, it does have its uses in time. So for example, if a small child comes to you and says they've hurt themselves, they've tripped over and you know banged their knee or whatever, you can empathise with that and that's fine, it's quite harmless. But when it comes to major incidents, then he argues that that's not a great way to go at all because you become blinded to the the solution because you step into that person's space and occupy it with them. Well, bleeding hearts are people who are overly empathetic. And it's also a concept in the psychological sciences referred to as compassion fatigue, where you overexert and you overcommit or maybe over-involve yourself in another person's suffering. And it's a prevalent issue amongst caregivers and caretakers. Say people, I think we were just talking about nurses just a while ago. And so people in the medical profession tend to report high levels of compassion fatigue as well. So as Sandy was mentioning, placing that distance, that comfortable distance, knowing your own limits to how much you can reasonably care for the other individual is important. And I think one of the keys to being able to make that transition is to know the difference between compassion and empathy. And when I did an interview with Paul Bloom, that was one of the questions I asked him, you know, what's the difference between the two? Because they sound interchangeable. If someone's compassionate, then they're empathetic, surely. But he said, no, empathy is when you basically adopt the person's feelings and their position, whereas compassion is where you can step back and just sort of see, like an overview, you can sort of see what's going on, but you don't sort of connect on an emotional level with regard to that. So you have that kind of connection, but it's not so strong. And then that enables you to then sort of take steps to help that person without being drained yourself. And I think when it comes to nurses, especially, or caregivers, I think it's very difficult to avoid transference in general. So because how do you do that when you're caring for someone? How do you you step back from that? It's easy when it's a stranger and you're their therapist. But when you get to know someone, then that becomes the trick to try and overcome, I would say. All this talk about looking at the positivity of negative emotions makes me think about the converse as well, in that there's a lot of negativity and positive emotions, oh, right? In that the things we do to strive for closure, to have total control over our feelings, can be very destructive. I mean, addiction is probably one obvious example, but there are instances at a more interpersonal mundane level where connections are prematurely cut off conversations are prematurely ended or they don't happen at all because we don't want to face those things because we just want to stay in our comfortable bubble, right? So I think that has to be discussed as well, not just what we overlook when we emphasize positivity, but the darker side of positivity, right? The damage it does when we just seek to feel pleasure or to feel control, right? Yes, there are countless studies right now actually showing that it's not all to our benefit to feel positive emotions. My favorite one is the is one particular study on how when people are excessively happy, 
they can be seen as being naive. So they are exploited a lot more. They're taken advantage a lot more in the workplace. So quite creatively, the study has summarized the findings by saying that ignorance may be bliss, but bliss is also ignorance. And so people are seen to be very naive and easily exploitable if they were excessively happy. There are also studies that tell us that when people are overly optimistic, they overestimate their abilities, they minimize the risks. Again, other experimental studies that tell us that when people are excessively happy or in a positive mood, they miss the details. So if we could tie that into the positivity of negativity, it's not necessarily a bad thing. When you're feeling negative, you become a lot more critical, yes, but you also become a lot more careful and deliberate in your options and your choices. You imagine that would be useful if you're making a high-risk, high-stakes decision and you don't want to rush into things that might result in substantial financial loss for the organization. By implication, you miss out details in other people as well. Absolutely, Because you might feel so settled with your yes, state yep. that you don't know how it's affecting other people around mm-hmm. you and you might not be as attentive to what they don't have. Yes, perhaps, absolutely. You know? So it makes you blind to the details. It makes you miss the necessary details, which would otherwise allow you to come to a more reason, more, say, I would say even rational conclusion. Yeah. You know, nothing is going to hurt in life like people. Oh. Like a ton of bricks can land on you and you yes, can recover yes, from that much yeah. easier than a heartbreak, you know? Yeah. So, and this is where I am always more attentive to the more negative side of things because that's where I think a lot is won or lost. You know, how is it that you never mind do something about it, but even name that space, that weird space, you know, because a lot of emotions too, we haven't talked about this, maybe we can have you on another time for it. Is a lot of them are kind of overlapping. And a lot of the times, we're just trying to figure out what we feel, you know. And I think that that's the point when we talk about human beings being messy, complex beings. There's never any kind of clear delineation when it comes to emotions. They don't have their boxes and a lot of them uh, sort of do overlap. And I think just to build on Eugene's point about being excessively happy as well, there was one particular study that showed that if you're happy while negotiating, then you're less likely to get the deal that you're after. Whereas if you're a bit more negative, a bit more assertive or angry, that you're likely to score a better deal because the person treats you more seriously. And I think when it comes to things like, as you say, breaking up with someone or having a loss and you're thrown into that space, it's really quite valuable in terms of allowing you to pick up certain valuable lessons. Whereas if you're sort of like the kind of people who smile and carry on, everything happens for a reason, that just dismisses the whole process of learning, of growing, of developing yourself and not making the same mistakes in future. So there is a certain naivety in bliss, I would suggest, even though it can be quite painful to be, I don't know, informed maybe. In relationships (laughs) as well, being excessively happy is... I would say detriment. Oh, I, I think the keyword here being excessively. So again, studies have also shown that if you do express some anger, as even one, one very interesting study called Tickling the Green Monster, so deliberately or strategically inciting some kind of jealousy. If we're talking about romantic relationships, does cause the other party to, hey, just wake up, take a little bit of notice and say, look, maybe I need to work on this relationship a little bit more. If we are drifting apart, and I think it's beneficial for us to, for me to feel that jealousy, and maybe work on that relationship and bring ourselves a little bit closer back together. The problem is people are very afraid to be pathetic. (laughs) That's the problem in the sense where we're always managing our appearance, we're always managing our words when 
Sometimes to get to the mm. heart of it, you just got to throw yourself into the deep end. That's it. Let the mess happen and yeah. then maybe step back and like yeah. piece it together. But the conversations don't happen enough mm. because people are too strategic, too calculative. Yeah. And they yeah. don't want, that's why they can't face the difficult feelings because yeah. then you get pathetic. Then you start, you know, then you have histrionics, you have, yeah. you know, people whining and moping mm. and that's just mm. always like an annoying or something. Mm. But a lot of it is not so cognitive, but just knowing how to like work with that rhythm of you know of the wines almost a rhythm know? of the wines <laughs> because I feel like you know a lot of a lot of it comes down to that because at the end of the day we all ha- want to let that inner child out and we don't always have the safe space for that and yeah. this is why sometimes it makes sense yeah of course you know guilt shame we got to face those things but face to face eye to eye it's very, very murky. You got to build a thick skin for it. And yeah, I mean, we can have another conversation around that. I, I think that's the English author, Alan Debaton. He suggested that every one of us needs therapy for that particular reason, because we suppress so much of ourselves that we don't allow, because it, we've been taught to suppress so much of ourselves that it never comes out. You know, So that's something that maybe therapists in the future can work towards to build that kind of everyday model and get rid of the stigma that only chronic people need therapy, because we all need it, because we're all messed up in our own special ways. Mm. Yeah, and I wonder if we're at a level now where contemporary society is so complex and we're socialised in that complexity, that and I don't want to like over intellectualize it either because a lot of these things we're supposed to know right because they deal with our parents our siblings our friends but things are no longer what they seem now you know <laughs> because even interpersonal relationships uh, require a lot of thought and care and that's not knowledge that's available to everybody you know unfortunately you know I think we need to create that safe space for us to express ourselves it was a little bit worrying to actually read some of the reviews that's recently come out saying that people's levels of empathy are actually on decline. They've actually been on a steady decline for the past 30 years or so. And perhaps technology is not the sole, say, factor which we should blame, but I think it is a contributing factor. So our interactions and engagements with one another are no longer at the personal one-on-one, face-to-face sort of nature. I don't think you can fully absolve the role of technology in influencing why empathy or the creation of safe spaces and really close, meaningful relationships has sort of diminished over the past couple of years. Yeah. And we can go on and on about this, but unfortunately, we have to pause here for now. And we'd love to have you again, you know, to delve deeper on these discussions. Now, reading suggestions, anything that you think our listeners should look up? I would suggest two books that would be really good to pick up. One is The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. And the other is called The Trauma of Everyday Life by Mark Epstein. That's a really good book to pick up if you've got a lot of challenges, especially. Mm. I recommend The Power of Negative Emotions. It's written by Biswas Diner and Cashton. Uh, and so that's a book that tells you about here's why it's beneficial to be and to experience all those negative emotions. But importantly as well, some really thoughtful suggestions on how you can make unpleasant negative emotions work for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So how can our listeners look at your work or get in touch with you on Twitter yeah, Facebook I'm on, I'm on Twitter up. at Real S. Clark, so you can get in touch with me there anytime. Mm-hmm. I'm also on Twitter, so I'm at Eugene underscore T. Okay, wonderful. And you can email the show, bfmnightschool at gmail.com, or look us up on Facebook, or download our app, the Apple App Store or Google Play. Thanks again, Eugene. Thanks again, Sandy. Thanks for having Thanks us. Uh, we'd love to have you again, and it's always like an engaging conversation with you every time you're here. I'm Ahmad Fat Rahma and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.